This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Saver. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have a special bonus episode for you about the types of milk and how milk is processed. So much milk science. Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, there's a surprising, or at least to me, surprising amount of scientific research and innovations that have happened because around Because of milk. Yeah. Yeah. And I am someone who, I grew up in a big milk family. We were a 2% milk family. Although now they switched to 1%. I found out when I came home for Thanksgiving. And as you know, I cooked the Thanksgiving <laughs> meal and I was like, well, what is this crap? This is going to impact some things. <laughs> um, yeah, I loved it as a kid. I drank it with dinner. I drank it all the time. Um, but I never at school because I know that this is probably in my head, but I felt like that carton milk wasn't as good, like those cardboard cartons. Oh, definitely in your head. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was 1% milk, though. That's true because we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, very briefly um, the milk that is offered in public schools. But this brings us, not to our question, but to a disclaimer. Yes. This episode is sponsored by Horizon Organic, a company that produces and sells milk and other dairy products, plus eggs and snack boxes. And we're not talking today about organic versus conventional products or about dairy farming practices because those are whole other episodes. What we are talking about is, like we're saying here, the actually completely fascinating world of milk 
processing. Uh, Horizon did approve the subject of this episode, but the content, as always, is all us. Yes, for better or worse, (laughs) I think for better, and hopefully you do too. And this brings us to our question, what? (laughs) It's just what? (laughs) Um... So there are a lot of types of milk. There's cow milk, there's goat milk, sheep milk, almond milk, rice milk, soy milk, cashew milk, coconut milk, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. But today we're mostly going to be focusing on types of dairy milk. And like we were alluding to, milk has long been the source of scientific research and was one of the first foods to undergo scientific testing. In a lot of countries around the world, it is the most regulated food there is. In the 2015 revision of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Pasteurized Milk Ordinance, there are five pages of abbreviations and acronyms alone. It is a 447-page document. If you're looking for some light reading. Yeah. (laughs) You may have noticed all kinds of terms on your milk. Pasteurized, homogenized, fortified, subcategories of those. HHST, HSHT, A and D. What does it mean? I don't know. Well, I do. Oh, good. And we'll get into that and some history after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Uh, yes, thank you. One thing I want to say before we start doing this, it's so hard for me as a person to not just research everything ever oh, about a topic. Yeah. And this is a huge one because you could talk about the history of cows, of domesticating cows, and how that led to this, and the history of goats and domesticating goats. I'm saying there's a lot of information out there. Yes. Many, much more episodes to follow. Yes. Many, I, much more. I like that I corrected myself to be less chromatic. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. But um, for the purposes of this, where we're sort of talking about processing and science, milk has been one of history's most contested, controversial foodstuffs for a couple of reasons, but the most important ones being babies and disease. Two of my favorite things. <laughs> I can't get Lauren to stop talking about babies and disease. <laughs> okay, so if we go back in history, having babies was a much more dangerous business than it is today. And the mortality rate was much higher. Or it is still a dangerous business in a lot of places. Yes. But, but both mothers and babies had a worse time of it in the past. Right. And this meant that folks were looking for alternatives to giving a baby breast milk from the mother since the mortality rate was so high. And there were two primary alternatives, natural and artificial. If you wanted natural, you had to find a wet nurse. Wet nurses got a decent pay for the time, so it was a desired job. A wet nurse was a woman who had recently had a baby herself and was still producing breast milk and could step in as a breast milk provider. And since breast milk was believed to impart characteristics of the woman to the baby, all kinds of stereotypes and preferences played into who got hired. We're blondes better than brunettes. Goodness knows you didn't want a redhead. That's not me saying that. that that's them saying What? It. Yeah, you really didn't oh, want a wow. redhead. Okay. The Romans avoided the talkative and temperamental types. And in Greece, you wanted to find a Greek wet nurse, if at all possible. Artificial feeding, on the other hand, is replacing human milk with animal milk. Because of the amount of milk cows produce and the relative ease of obtaining their milk as compared to, say, a sheep or a goat, cow milk became the milk of choice. And not to keep harping on this point, but milk really has been the source of a lot of science. In the 18th century, folks noticed that milkmaids were strangely immune to smallpox, or not so strangely, because they figured out that thanks to milkmaids' near-constant exposure to cows and thus cowpox, it helped them become immune to smallpox. And this gave Edward Jenner the idea for a vaccine. That's pretty cool. There you go. Mm -hmm. Thanks, milk. <laughs> thanks, milk. During the 18th and 19th century, people turned away from natural feeding and latched onto artificial feeding. This was bad. Children died at a terrifying rate in big cities. Manhattan was a particular dangerous spot for children due to the proximity of dairies to breweries, and this introduced leftover beer stuffs into milk. Almost 50% of children in Manhattan died in the 1840s. Unrefrigerated milk spoils within 48 hours, by the way. And at this time, remember, ice was the only way to keep things cool, and ice still had to be harvested from natural frozen bodies of water. Um, research was underway towards creating machines that could freeze water into ice by the 1840s, but there would not be commercial ice makers until about the 1870s. There wouldn't be commercial refrigerators until the 19 aughts, and consumers didn't start getting fridges in their homes until the 19-teens at the earliest. 
And of course, as this technology was new, it was very expensive at the start. So your average Joe couldn't afford refrigerated dairy products for a good while, even after they were on the market. But back to the mid-1800s, entrepreneurs were exploring other methods of preserving milk. Uh, Gail Borden, yes, that Borden, developed condensed milk in the U.S. in the 1850s, and one Henri Nestle was one of the early developers of a powdered milk baby formula in the 1860s. And yes, that Nestle. Um, But neither of these give you the experience of fresh milk. And fresh milk, at the time, kept killing people. This was a concern. And folks started to put together that bacteria in milk might have something to do with it. Louis Pasteur and his germ theory was at the forefront of this whole thing. And he got right down to the solution, heat. In 1864, he developed pasteurization as a way to make wine last longer. So I guess wine was a bigger concern. Yeah. Well, he was he was called in by a wine manufacturer to figure out what was making this this beetroot liquor or wine go sour. It was turning into vinegar. No good. Um, and Pasteur observed a microbe that would lead to his germ theory, first as it related to fermentation. Before this, the theory of spontaneous generation was most common for why things would spoil, you know, like, like maggots just spontaneously show up in, in rotting meat. They just poof, poof. Spontaneous maggots is something I don't want. No, nobody wants it. I'm honestly way more comfortable with germs. That, that's definitely a spell in like D&D or something. Ooh. Spontaneous maggots. Oh, I don't. Okay, I'm uncomfortable. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Napoleon okay. the third now. Sure. He, he hired Pasteur to look into France's wine woes as well. And Pasteur developed um, a, a process for the time and temperature needed to kill microbes with heat in the absence of air, and he patented this process as pasteurization. Now, if you seal most beings off from air and gradually heat them up, they're not going to last very long. But bacteria are killed by the pasteurization process specifically because um, because proteins and fats are heat-sensitive. Okay, uh, a bacterium is a single-celled organism. Its, its cell wall contains all of its working bits— some of those working bits are enzymes, which tend to be these, these three-dimensional curly structures made up of proteins. When you heat proteins up, they denature. That is, they change shape and therefore cannot work the same way that they used to. So you get a bacterium warm enough and its bodily processes stop. Furthermore, the fats and proteins in its cell wall will weaken and the heat will increase the pressure against the cell wall and it will eventually burst. Guts out, dead bacterium. Don't feel too bad for it. It might have caused tuberculosis or botulism. Oh. Of course, all of that nitty-gritty of how the single-celled organisms work wasn't, you know, knowledge back then. They just knew that it did work. Mm-hmm. They didn't know why, but they knew that it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Europe got on the pasteurization train soon after all of Europe for beer and vinegar. After the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, Pasteur who had been kind of kind of stingy with his patent for a while, was really quick to share the process with French and French-allied brewers, like Copenhagen's Carlsberg Brewery. Pasteur was looking specifically to make better beer than Germany was famous for. I love it. He called it revenge beer. <gasps> revenge beer? Yeah. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> oh, I love a good revenge food item thing. <laughs> 
but it was a German scientist, one Franz von Sochslied, who suggested introducing the process of pasteurization to milk in 1886. He had been studying milk for a while, analyzing its components, comparing human and cow milk, and... Okay, let's hop over to New York City. Yes. In New York in 1891, the average infant mortality rate was 240 deaths per 1,000 births. Many of the deaths were believed to be from tainted milk supplies, typhoid, scarlet fever, diphtheria, and tuberculosis. This was also the age of industrialization, and as we've discussed in previous episodes, regulation was lagging behind the increased processing, shipping, and handling that food was being subjected to. And some producers were less than scrupulous. Um, In Philadelphia in 1891, from July to August, 10% of the milk inspected was condemned due to adulteration with additives or with water. But another German guy, Abraham Jacobi, who had immigrated to New York in the 1850s, took up the cause of milk pasteurization in the late 1800s. And a friend of his opened the self-named Nathan Strauss Pasteurized Milk Laboratory in 1892. It offered low-cost pasteurized milk to less-than-wealthy folks. But the process was not perfect yet. Researchers were trying to figure out the best temperature and time to pasteurize milk to, I mean, you know, wine was figured out, but to pasteurize (laughs) milk to maintain the flavor and the solubility of the proteins that it contains. Uh, Plus, pasteurized milk can be contaminated after the fact. Like, the whole bottling process has to be clean. Sellers and consumers have to keep it at safe temperatures. There was some controversy because of all this about the flavor and relative safety of pasteurized milk versus raw milk. But there was also just, like, so much tuberculosis. So much tuberculosis. And as we talked about in our episode on expiration dates, Chicago passed the first law requiring milk to be pasteurized in the United States, possibly at the behest of Al Capone. Don't say you never did anything nice for you. (laughs) I've never said that. (laughs) This was 1908, and their specific mandate called for milk from farms that had not been certified tuberculosis-free be pasteurized. Then, spurred on by the 1913 New York typhoid epidemic, other cities passed full-on mandatory pasteurization laws. New York City's infant mortality rate dropped by two-thirds in just seven years. Wow. In 1924, uh, the precursor to the FDA, the United States Public Health Service, enacted the Standard Milk Ordinance. It was for voluntary adoption by states and urged nationwide pasteurization. Before that... Milkmen delivered milk in buckets. It'd be sold that way by vendors, too. Like, you might get a cup of milk drawn from a bucket at a restaurant or from a street cart. Times have changed. Also, for the Harry Potter fact of the episode, one of those reasons that 17, however many high-number publishers turned down those books was that there was a milkman in the beginning. And the publishers were like, this is so dated, no one will understand. (laughs) Milkman? (laughs) No. (laughs) And then, now they're like, milkman. Anyway. Still, (laughs) there was refining to be done. In 1938, 25% of food and waterborne illnesses that were actually traced back to their origin were milk-based. Michigan became the first state to require by law that all milk sold within the state be pasteurized in 1947. These days, there are lots of different types of pasteurization that a producer might choose to use on their milk. 
Uh, smaller producers might use batch vat processing in which a whole tank worth of milk is heated to 145 Fahrenheit or 62.8 Celsius for 30 minutes, then cooled and packaged. And I want to put in here that usually when I'm translating things from uh, from Fahrenheit to Celsius, I don't bother, or, or vice versa, or any kind of numbers, I don't bother using decimal points. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to maintain them here because in my personal experience, the milk industry is so precise yes. that I felt like I would be personally betraying it mm. if I left off those decimals or rounded up or down. Yeah, no. From mm-hmm. our from our experience going to uh, Atlanta Fresh, the yogurt company, Yeah, that was the most serious shoot I've ever been on. <laughs> yes. They were like, seriously, don't touch anything. You'll get a shutdown. Yeah, yeah. And there were so many, um, like, Signs gauges and gauges and, and recording devices yeah, for numbers, all the temperatures. temperatures. Yeah. It was pretty impressive. If, if you want to see some of that, there's a video that exists online. Yeah, about how yogurt's made. Our time, and it's very meta. <laughs> it is. Oh, man. Huh. Anyway, yes. Uh, okay, so small producers probably use vat processing. Large producers use something called continuous processing, in which... Technologically, it's so fascinating. So so milk moves through this system of plates that are heated to a higher temperature for a shorter amount of time, like way higher and way shorter. And there's two types, which you may have seen on labels, um, HTST, which stands for high temperature short time, and HHST, which stands for higher heat shorter time. HTST holds milk at 161 Fahrenheit or 71.7 Celsius for only 15 seconds. Wow. HHST holds milk at at least 191 Fahrenheit or 88.3 Celsius for up to one second. That's amazing. Yeah. Ultra-pasteurized milk and cream, meanwhile, can use a process that can keep them fresh even longer. It's sapped to 280 degrees Fahrenheit that's 137.8 Celsius for two whole seconds. A lot can happen in two seconds. You really want to kill the bugs. That's the way to do it. Canned milk is sterilized at uh, 240 Fahrenheit or 115.6 Celsius for 20 minutes. And those boxes of, like, shelf-stable milk that you might have seen in stores just sitting out at room temperature, um, those are processed with what's called UHT, or ultra-high pasteurization. That's above 275 Fahrenheit or 135 Celsius for up to 15 seconds. Up to 15 seconds? Wild. Very. (laughs) And there are still debates about raw versus pasteurized milk, and some states have chosen to allow raw milk to be sold at farms or farmers markets or even at retail stores. Research into this debate could also be a whole other episode, but in brief, science so far says that if you're if you're concerned about um, the the content of helpful lactic acid bacteria, which pasteurization would kill off, science says that even raw milk has fewer of these bacteria than it used to, due to regulations about cooling, not about heating in pasteurization. Okay, okay. Um, that's one concern. Another concern is that pasteurization might alter some of the helpful enzymes in milk. And uh, research shows that vat and continuous pasteurization, at any rate, do not significantly alter helpful enzymes in milk. They can destroy some nutrients, though. Up to 20% of milk's vitamin C and a lesser amount of other stuff like vitamin B12. But this brings us to milk fortification. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) So... While all of this hubbub over pasteurization was happening, other medical sciences were advancing as well. What? What? (laughs) 
Starting in the late 19-teens, research into rickets, which is a weakening of bones in children, which was unfortunately really common at the time, this research found that what would come to be called vitamin D could help prevent the disease. By 1932, milk fortified with vitamin D was on the market with explicit approval by the American Medical Association. And y'all, Americans were drinking a lot of milk around this time. We were getting like 10% of our daily calories from milk. So, bolstered by the vitamin D thing, and with further research into other vitamins, there was this push to add vitamin A to milk in the 1940s. Uh, This vitamin is necessary for lots of functions from, like, eyesight to reproduction. Moving forward in history, uh, as low-fat and skim milks gained popularity in the 60s and 70s, researchers realized that vitamin A content was reduced in those reduced-fat products. So, Eventually, the FDA started enforcing the addition of vitamin A to replace any that was lost during the removal of fats. It's an, it's an optional process to add it into whole milk, though. Fortification with vitamin D is always optional because fat content doesn't particularly fuss with the amount of vitamin D present uh, because milk doesn't contain a whole lot of it naturally, but most processors do add it. And the government, although it doesn't technically enforce this sort of unofficially tipped the scales by requiring all of the dairy products that it contracts to be vitamin D fortified, knowing full well that it's really difficult for producers to run two separate tracks for fortified and unfortified milk. Ah, I see. Yeah. Um, Also, and I love this note, the FDA upped the minimum optional addition of vitamin D in 2016 after... (laughs) After science showed that all of us netheads aren't getting enough sunlight anymore, <laughs> so our requirements for vitamin D are going up. For, like, oh, supplemental vitamin D are going up. That's so interesting. Yeah. We spend too much time indoors. All of this science really is just huge and fascinating. Um, like, you have to make sure that you can deliver a specific dose, as it were. Um, You know, too little and you're cheating your consumer. Too much of either A or D is a health risk. The potency of either can degrade with time unless the milk is stored properly in regards to exposure to light and heat and cold and air. Vitamin concentrates can be either oil-based or water-dispersible. Each of those must be added during different times in the processing, possibly with emulsifiers, to ensure that every container of the final product, whether it's skim or whole, has a reliable amount of vitamins. But hey... Speaking of fats and milk, we've got some more history and science for you. But first, we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. 
funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Okay, so, meanwhile, meanwhile... With the backdrop of all these other innovations in milk processing, producers were looking to solve another problem. In raw milk, fats will float to the top. And back in the days before pasteurization and bottled milk, like if you if you dipped out a ladle of milk and it wasn't well mixed immediately beforehand, you might get a lot of cream or none. So as early as 1919, a producer in Connecticut, the Torrington Creamery, started making and selling homogenized milk. Homogenized. What is it? <laughs> you tell me, please. <laughs> <laughs> homogenized means that, um, okay, well, if you've listened to any of our former episodes about yogurt or cheeses or eggnog or other dairy, you'll have heard me say that milk is an emulsion, uh, a mix of two things that don't usually mix, in this case, oils and water. And that's not entirely true. What? Lauren, have you been misleading us? Oh, the betrayal. Oh, my goodness. In raw milk, the, the globules of fat and fat-soluble stuff tend to be fairly large, large enough that they will float in the watery base of milk. Homogenization breaks them down into more even, smaller globules that will spread themselves evenly throughout that watery base. Oh. The process was patented by Frenchman Auguste Gaulin in 1899. You, you use a, a pressure pump to force the milk through a narrow tube at high velocity— uh, modern machines usually do this twice in rapid succession to break the smaller globules apart from one another. But back to the early 1900s. Especially after bottled milk hit the scene, restaurants, and perhaps more importantly, physicians, were super on board with this more reliable milk. Mm -hmm. Especially when the process was made much easier by one G. Malcolm Trout, realizing in 1929 that homogenization is a lot easier if you pasteurize the milk first. So really, these, these two innovations went hand in hand since people wanted this homogenized product and since pasteurization made the product safer and easier to homogenize, it was like, well, let's just do this to everything. A match made in... Milky, milky heaven. And speaking of heaven, kind of. Yeah? Kind of. <laughs> the uh, heavens, perhaps. Yes. One of my favorite milk facts that I stumbled on doing this research is in Greek mythology, the Milky Way 
was formed when Hera spilled breast milk while feeding Hercules. Oh. And these drops of milk are the stars. Wow. I also have a really embarrassing memory side. Uh, <laughs> based on a Milky Way. Yeah. I guess this is not that embarrassing, but for some reason I'm very embarrassed about it. When we were in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher asked the whole class, like, what do you think is the name of our galaxy? I'll give you a hint. It is also the name of a candy bar. And I'd say half the class got it. And I guessed Butterfinger. And I don't know what I was thinking. Why would our galaxy be called Butterfinger? I don't know. But I like the way that, I mean, I like that thought process. I think I just liked Butterfingers. I don't think there's anything other than that. But there is butter, milk. Crispy, crunchy, crispity, crunchity. Delicious. Delicious, they are. Bart Simpson liked them. Right? There you go. (laughs) I've taken as a little... (laughs) Off track here. Um, What about types of milk? Oh, like like, like in terms of fat content. Yes. Um, uh, Skim milk, uh, whole milk, etc. Yeah, this is achieved with a process called standardization in which fat is separated from milk with a centrifuge, um, either until the milk reaches the desired fat content or until the cream is totally taken out and then it's added back in until that correct balance is achieved. And there is some... I think, pretty interesting history behind skim milk in particular. Mm -hmm. So skim milk is fat-free milk or 0% milk fat by weight, which is what those percentages mean. Before folks were really concerned with losing weight or keeping a, like, low-fat diet. um, Oh, right, right. The whole sugar versus fat thing, which we've talked about. Yes, see our sugar episode for more on that. Nobody was drinking skim milk. It was a byproduct of butter making and was tossed a lot of times into rivers. In Wisconsin, 40,000 pounds of skim milk into the river. Sometimes these rivers flooded. It stank, both literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so skim milk's profile got a boost in the 1930s when scientists figured out how to extract casein, which is a byproduct of skim milk, and it could be used in all kinds of things, even in fashion, and especially in wartime things. Skim milk in powdered form, and and casein were both very important, invaluable during World War II. And this whole thing of taking an agricultural byproduct and turning it into an industrial resource had a name, thanks to a chemist at Dow Chemical working there in the 1930s, Kimmergy. 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 It sounds like a very, you know, synergy, synergy-esque. Yeah. Word of the day. Yes. Um, I, I read a very interesting description of it as kind of like this tension between us moving from being agricultural-based to modernized industrial society. Anyway, um, like we talked about in our sugar episodes, the sugar industry, along with a lot of other things, did an excellent job of demonizing fat. As part of that, skim milk became, became seen as a health food. The Department of Agriculture recommended Americans switch to skim milk three cups a day by 1985. By 1988, low-fat milk sales surpassed whole milk for the first time. Public schools moved to non-fat and low-fat milk options in 2012. And in the 1950s, skim milk became very feminized. If we go back a bit, um, I found a lot of ads that were sort of along the lines of 
Lose weight and win your man back, ladies. Oh, my goodness. Drink skim milk. There was also a very sexy bikini model involved, which I was confused about because it was still targeted towards women. I guess it was supposed to be like, this is your ideal. Yeah, but it said, like, you can win her or something. It didn't make sense to me. (laughs) Anyway, as you can imagine, there are a lot of mixed opinions and studies out there about whether or not skim milk is better for you or even good for you or will help you keep your weight under control. Ugh. Bodies are complicated. They are. Um, there's low fat, which is 1%, uh, reduced fat, 2%, and whole milk, 3.5% milk fat. So 3.25 to 3.5. It can vary a little bit in there. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. The whole here means that it is, compared to the other types, relatively unadulterated. And it has taken a pretty big hit due to the whole low fat thing. In 2013, sales dropped below 14 billion pounds, which is a decrease of 61% since 1975, while sales of 2% have doubled and 1% have tripled. Also wanted to throw in a note here about buttermilk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We talked about it briefly in our butter episode, but the buttermilk you see in grocery stores, um, buttermilk used to actually be buttermilk, the liquid leftover from churning butter. But now it's homogenized, pasteurized milk that has some culture added in. Added in after the fact, And yeah. there's a really funny Sometimes. slash sad legalese thing where you can't call real... Buttermilk buttermilk anymore because right. buttermilk has taken on this... This new identity. This mechanized sort of name. This new persona. It's remade yeah. itself. Oh, man. Uh, my dad, <laughs> he used to threaten us with buttermilk. He, I, I don't know why, but as kids, me and my brothers all assumed it was very gross. We never tried it. We just were like, oh. You're like butter and milk in one word. No, never. Disgusting. Butter and finger in one word. Perfect. <laughs> I'm a complicated human being, Lauren. As, as are we all. Yes. But he, so he loved it. And buttermilk was one of his favorite things. Buttermilk pie was one of his favorite things. But Ooh, yeah. like kids, we hated it. And he would threaten <laughs> us with it. He would be like, Annie, now you behave or I'm going to make you drink some buttermilk tonight. And I would feel fear in my heart. Oh, wow. But now I've tried it. I'm like, this is great. I love it. Yeah. I remember my grandfather drinking it and me, like, it, it seemed, it looked like viscous in mm-hmm. the glass. And so I wasn't down with that. Mm-hmm. But um, but I don't think I actually, I don't think I actually tried it. Or if I did, it was too sour for me at the time. Now I love it. So good. Especially, especially the real stuff. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. My dad used to put cornbread in his. I think that grossed me out too. Oh. Oh, man, that sounds even, oh, that sounds even better. That sounds like a delicious milkshake. That is such a Southern thing, I I suspect. Oh, I very strongly suspect. (laughs) Oh. And on that note, (laughs) this about brings us to the end of our exploration into milk processing. Yeah, I maintain um, from our trip to to a dairy processing plant one time during a road trip that this is like... I am so into this. I think that if I had to stop being a podcaster for some reason, I would try to go into dairy science. <laughs> I'm kind of serious. Like I like I really love it. I would very much love for you to go into that <laughs> if if the option ever arises. Um it's fascinating. It's really cool. We we tend to geek out about like those little industrial so specific Right, right. The very specific parts that were just made for this one thing and they do them so well. And, oh, and, and all of the, and just, I mean, anytime that I get to talk about bacteria poop, of course, y'all know that I'm excited, so. Yes, yes. 
And hopefully you are excited along with us, or at the very least, (laughs) semi-intrigued. At least tolerant. (laughs) Yes. You're 2% there for it. (laughs) Uh, But so many episode topics branching off from this one. Oh, absolutely. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, milk-related or otherwise... We would love to hear them. Mm-hmm. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at saverpod. We do hope to hear from you. Thank you, as always, to our super producer, Dylan Fagan. Thank you to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary, stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com.